different when we do things out of order. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good morning. My name is Derek Carpenter. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just got to say that was a great way to start. Thank you, worship team. And thank you for everybody else singing along. To start with recognizing God as being great is where we should always start. Paul taught on prayer some weeks ago. Uh, and the Lord's Prayer begins that way. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, recognizing him. And we always begin with God that way, recognizing him for who he is and his greatness. And in that is also recognizing where we fit in that. Uh, the Lord's Prayer begins our father. So we begin as his children, but, but below him, recognizing him. And then we can move to the rest of it. So uh, great way to start. Let me pray. Father in heaven, <laughs> hallowed be your name. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Everything is yours. God, we are here because of you, because of how great you are. We are desperate to see you move, not only in our own lives, to get rid of sin, uh, to heal our relationships, to fill us with your peace and joy. Uh, but we're desperate to see you move in our kids' lives and in their friends' lives and in our community to see many saved uh, and come to you. And, and we're going to be about this. You're going to be about this in and through us until you come back. And I ask that that would be uh, soon. This afternoon is available. Uh, so come back soon. We love you, Jesus. Uh, in your name, amen. So how many people here followed the El Chapo trial? Anybody? Nobody? Oh. I didn't either, really. Um, <laughs> but I read about it. So El Chapo was this, this Mexican drug lord uh, responsible for smuggling, you know, tons and tons of drugs into the States, um, lots of murders, all this nasty stuff. Uh, finally, he was caught. He's been caught and broke out of prison, I think, twice. Um, this time, they brought him to New York, and he had a three-month-long trial, and they found him guilty and life in prison. But the interesting thing, as I was kind of reading after that was concluded and I was reading about that trial, was uh, the, uh, one of the defense attorneys actually said this. He said, I've never faced a case with so many cooperating witnesses and so much evidence. During that trial, there were 56 eyewitness, eyewitnesses that testified against El Chapo. I don't remember his real name, um, but testified against him that all these things that they're claiming are true. Uh, and that led, obviously, the jury to find him guilty. Now, I, I start with that to get the idea of relativism, because the idea of relative truth is very, very popular right now. It's been growing and growing that I can believe what I want to believe and you can believe what you want to believe. And what's true for me is true for me. And what's true for you is true for you. The problem with that is it breaks down when it intersects with real life, such as this trial with El Chapo. If everything's relative, then, then there's no point in having that trial and finding truth and listening to witnesses because everything's relative. So you can't even find somebody guilty of a crime if relativism is true. Now, we know that as we look into history, there are things that have happened in the past that are true, that happened, that have consequences. We talked about this last month in the, the youth group. And it was kind of interesting because the junior hires um, are smart enough, but not as sophisticated as the rest of us, that the idea of relativism to them is just stupid. Um, it was kind of interesting as we were talking about it, they're like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. But, but we get sophisticated later because it feels good to say, oh, you believe what you want to believe and I can believe. That feels good. It feels tolerant, but yet 
it's not true. I mean, for example, we know the Revolutionary War happened and we gained our independence. We know that the Holocaust happened, although that is one of those people try to deny, but there's plenty of evidence that happened and millions of Jews were killed. We know in the past there was a guy who tried to set his shoe on fire in an airplane and blow it up. And so now, consequence, we have to take our shoes off when we go into the check. There's things that have happened that are true. People saw them, evidence pointed to truth. And the same is true with religion. Now, you get to religion, spirituality, and relativism goes to a new level. Because, oh, those are all things that we can't know. It's all spiritual, and so it's all true. Many roads lead to heaven. And again, that feels really good to say. It feels really good to talk to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim or a Buddhist and go, great, you have your religion and I have mine. And in the end, we'll end up in the same place and it's great. That feels good because it feels tolerant, non-judgmental. The problem is it's not loving because it's not true. The same as these past events, Christianity is based on past events that happened that have consequences. The biggest of those, the largest, is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. If that happened, then we have absolute truth, and we have the only truth and the only way to salvation. If that didn't happen, then we are confused. In fact, Paul wrote it this way in Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So the idea of of a Christianity, of a church that doesn't actually believe in the resurrection, makes no sense. There cannot be a Christian that doesn't believe in the resurrection, that it actually happened in past. Not that it was a myth, not that it's a great idea that creates some good things in people, but that this, these things actually happened. Now, here's the other thing that happens a lot of times with religion and Christianity also, is that we believe because we believe. But here's the really cool thing about the Bible, is the Bible gives us good reason to believe. Jesus isn't one that says, hey, just ignore all reason and just believe in me. I, I've met Christians and I've had those conversations where I've probed and asked them questions. I said, why do you believe in Jesus and not, you know, Muhammad as prophet? And they're like, I just believe. I'm like, well, you might want to figure some of that out because God doesn't ask us to just believe. He actually gives us really good reason to believe. I mean, it's, it's foolishness, to be honest, just to believe something because it feels good. I mean, if here's this, this great story that God took on flesh And this man named Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross. And when he did, he took all of our sins upon his shoulders. And then he rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. And by belief in him, we can have life forever. That's a really good story. If that wasn't true, we would want it to be. If that wasn't true, I could see good reasons to go. I'm going to believe that anyway, because that feels really good. For my grace, I've been saved, not of my work, so I can now do whatever I want and believe... So instead, God gives us good reason to believe. We're going to be beginning a series in Luke. So go ahead and turn to Luke, if you would. And this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, if you need a Bible, there's one in the underneath chair, under your chair, the one in front of you. Uh, Luke is in the New Testament. It's one of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. So it's about here in my Bible. 
Um, Luke is interesting. Luke wrote this gospel message, this message about Jesus Christ, after the book of Mark was already written, after uh, the book of Matthew was already written. He wrote this. Luke is a doctor. He, he was a physician. Luke is a historian. In fact, his, his writings, both Luke and Acts, Luke also wrote Acts. It's a two-part series, if you like series. Uh, and, and his books have been used in archaeology. And, and those who have studied archaeology and studied history, they look back at Luke and go, he is a reliable historian. So Luke is not just you know, some religious guy from the, from the first century. He was uh, somebody fairly up in society, but he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. And so he was writing for a purpose. And throughout his gospel, the gospel of Luke, we see several things we don't see in other gospels. And so as we do, we've already done our survey of Matthew. You can look it up on the podcast if you missed it. You, we did our survey of Mark. That was a lot of fun. And now we're doing our four-week survey of Luke. And we're going to hone in on, on one of his themes throughout. And one of his themes is objections to belief, basically. So Luke answers the big objections to belief that we have right now in our society. Luke answered those 2,000 years ago. They're really nothing new. And so we're going to talk about that. Today we're going to talk about the truth of the resurrection. Did it actually happen? And then we're going to go on uh, and we're going to look at doesn't the hypocrisy of Christians prove Christianity is false. I, I watched an interview on YouTube just the other day. I mean, that's a big one. A big reason why people don't believe is because we're somewhat hypocritical. That's a valid objection to belief. But Luke talked about that. So we're going to look at that. The next week, we're going to look at if God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? If God is good and all-powerful, why do bad things happen? That's another great objection. You go on the street and say, why don't you believe in God? These are the things that people will say. And then the last one is, how could a loving God send people to hell? I mean, these are, these are really the top four things where people say, because of this, I don't believe. Well, Luke answered those. So this series is going to be awesome. And if you know somebody that's a skeptic and needs some of this, bring them. This will be a great time. Again, and let them know, we're not one of those churchy, religious, judge you type. You know, come just as you are, um, and we can wrestle with these truths together. But we're going to begin in Luke. And here's your, your first Note for your handout if you're a note taker. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity. We begin with that because that's what we're going to look at this week. Did this happen? And the, uh, the, the modern American church, in fact, the, the majority of denominations have actually moved to a place where they somewhat deny the reliability of the Bible, and it's not even central to them to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Isn't that a little bit crazy? Um, but that's where the church has gone in large part. We're going to begin at, at the beginning. Look at Luke 1, if you would. Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke, the historian, the physician, the Gentile, writes this. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some, some, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here's how he begins. This is really cool because Luke is, is laying out there, here's why I'm writing. 
and he's writing to another Gentile, a guy probably in Rome, a Roman official, because uh, he calls him most excellent. His name is Theophilus. He's writing to him for a purpose. And obviously, he knew this was going to be passed out. It, it really wasn't just for him. Uh, Theophilus, uh, some would say that's actually representative of all those who would be searching for truth. So this is very evangelistic. But really, it looks like it was to this certain individual. But it was also going to be meant for a wider audience. And here's his purpose, verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke seemed to think that the truth about Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, all those are true. They actually happened. And so he's writing that you may have certainty. Luke believes in absolute truth. And by the way, in that day and age, pluralism is popular now. It was popular then. I mean, many of the, the Gentile religions, they would just add another God into their pantheon. So there were times where, where Paul would go and preach and they're like, oh yeah, this Jesus sounds good. Let's just add him to our other ones. But Luke and the other gospel writers, they seem to think that there's something unique about Jesus. This is true because he's writing that you could have certainty. And Jesus claims things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's saying things like that are certain. Now, how did Luke write? This is also kind of interesting. Luke is not one of the 12 apostles. He's not Matthew, Mark. Well, sorry. <laughs> I'm going through the Gospels there. He's not one of the 12 apostles. Peter, John, Nathaniel, Thaddeus. He's not one of those. Luke came afterward, and he heard the stories from those eyewitnesses. And then he was a close companion of Paul, who was also an apostle, who also saw the risen Jesus. Paul, who traveled as a missionary. Luke traveled with him. And you see in verse 2 that he writes, just as those who from the beginning, that means the beginning with Jesus, were eyewitnesses and ministers. He's writing because he interviewed the eyewitnesses. Luke heard the stories and went, that sounds good, but is it true? And as he traveled with Paul, I kind of picture him with his notepad because he was educated. He could write, a lot couldn't, but he could write. He probably had that notepad and he's going along going like, hey, Mary, mother of Jesus, Tell me about what happened at the beginning because his account at the beginning of, of the birth of Jesus is different than the other ones. I think he talked to the shepherds up on the hill that saw the angels. So like, what was that like? All these angels appeared. It was awesome. There was this bright, I mean, it looks like he did some research and then wrote it down saying, I've spoken to the eyewitnesses. This is reliable. They're not making this up. All these people agree on the same thing. Kind of like that whole El Chapo trial. They had 56 witnesses that they could bring in and go, I saw the same thing. I saw the same thing. That's what Luke is doing. It's not just Peter putting this out. There's a whole bunch. Well, now we're going to skip to the end. Turn to Luke 24. I wanted to start there to show you why Luke is writing, but now we're going to read the last chapter. I don't know if you're one of those that you'll read the last page of a book to see if you want to read the book. I don't get that at all. Uh, my wife is one of those. So we're going to do that. Turn to Luke 24 because what we're going to look at is the greatest truth claim in the Bible and what Luke builds to, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke writes, this is in your notes, that his readers may be certain that the stories of Jesus are true, that they may be certain. And now we're going to look at the account of the resurrection. Now, here's, here's to set the scene real quick. Jesus died. He died on the cross. 
Uh, he was in Jerusalem. Many witnessed it. His, his, his crucifixion was one where he carried a piece of his cross after being lashed and whipped, bloody all over. He walked through the, the city to get up to where he was crucified. Uh, a week before the crucifixion, he walked into Jerusalem. And many were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're putting palm branches down. This is just a week before. Celebrating, hey, the Messiah is here. A week later, they kill him. Everybody knew what was going on. Everybody had heard of Jesus doing his miracles. He's dead. Joseph, a rich man who was a, a God lover, comes to Pilate, who was the Roman official that had him crucified, and says, can I have his body? Pilate says, yes, take his body. So Joseph takes his body and goes and he puts it in his own tomb, a rich man's tomb. He puts it in his tomb, which was a cave that was kind of hewn out of a rock, puts him in the tomb, and then rolls a big stone in the front. Three days later, the first day of the week, look at Luke 24, starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. By the way, they is uh, a handful of women. women. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But the, when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So here's the beginning of this account. Again, this is a detailed account. Luke probably spoke to these women and, and wrote down. But they go to the tomb. They, they were going to honor Jesus by putting more spices on his dead body. They didn't get that he had to raise. And they get there, he's not there. They go into the tomb and two angels appear. And they just, I mean, how awesome would that be? But they say, why are you looking for the dead among, or the living among the dead? He's alive. Jesus has risen from the dead. And so they go back and they tell the rest of the disciples. And what does it say about them? They don't believe. When the disciples first heard that Jesus rose from the dead, they did not believe. I think that's interesting. Because they were with him for three years. They watched him heal the lame. They watched him give sight to the blind. They watched him raise several other people from the dead. The most famous of those was Lazarus, who had been dead four days and buried in a tomb. And Jesus goes up to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come on out. And Lazarus hops out all wrapped up in his wrappings. And he says, go untie him because he's alive. That's Jesus. They watched him do those things. And here they have trouble believing that he could raise himself from the dead or that God could raise him from the dead. They did not believe. I want to make a note before we continue with this story. We're going to read a lot of this story, which is awesome. It's well written. If this was made up and this was one of those objections to Christianity at the beginning, it was the disciples, those men made up this story and spread it out. If this was made up, they would have told the story differently. They wouldn't have told it this way. And here's one example. The first witnesses were women. Now, this is very uh, um, 
repulsive in our society of, of equality, and it should be, but women in that day and age could not be witnesses in a, in a court. They were not considered reliable witnesses, which I don't understand, makes no sense, but that was their culture. So for them to write this down, they wouldn't have put the women first because those in the society would read that and go, whatever, <laughs> they were women. So they would have told it differently. There's other aspects. As you read through the Gospels, the disciples, they make themselves look pretty bad. Uh, they're always making mistakes. Jesus is always chiding them for their lack of faith. I mean, if I was writing a story about me, passing on to you to make you think that I'm this great religious person you should follow, I would tell that story a little bit different. Um, so anyway, just wanted to, to point that out, that it's women that see it first. They're sharing the truth. This is what happened. They're not fabricating it. They're not putting it together to make it more palatable. They're just saying, this is what happened. Now look at verse 12. But Peter, so he just hears this from the ladies. Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, from the other accounts, we know that John was also with Peter. Uh, when they get there, John is faster, and he gets there, and he looks in. Peter then runs past him and goes in, and they see that Jesus is gone. And they see what was wrapped around Jesus, because that's the way they did it, was still laying there. And they go back marveling. It doesn't say they believe yet. It's they're skeptics. They, they didn't quickly believe. They didn't believe the women when they said it. Now they see some evidence, and they're still not quite believing it. But they will believe. And again, I want to draw this out. They will believe. And they will believe to the extent that they will give their lives for it. Peter later will be crucified, just like Jesus. But tradition says a lot of the way they died is in history, but it's not written in the Bible because it happened after that. But Peter was crucified upside down. Tradition says because Peter didn't count himself equal with Jesus to be killed the same way as him, so he had him turn it upside down. Uh, Philip... I think Philip was crucified on a cross this way. It was an, and he was crucified that way. James was beheaded. And it goes on. Others were killed with spears. One was killed with hooks and hung upside down. This is the way they died. If you knew a story was made up, if you made it up to start your own religion, would you die for it this way? Absolutely not. And we can look through history because you could object and go, well, look at the other religions. I'm just going to pick one because this one I researched on, Mormonism. Their big prophet, Joseph Smith, you know how he died? In a gunfight breaking out of jail. So, I mean, there's a big difference between the beginning of this religion and the beginning of every other religion. Muhammad, too, was a violent man. You just read those histories. This is different than every other religion. The first disciples, this is in your notes, believed in Jesus' resurrection to the point they were willing to die gruesome deaths for him. Gruesome deaths for him. Now let's look on. In verse 13, here's an account that is not in any other gospel. And this tells us some things about Jesus. I think Jesus has a sense of humor. That very day, two of them, that is two disciples, we're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So picture that. They're, they're traveling. Another Jew comes along, you know, a brother, an Israelite comes along. says, oh, I'm going that way too. 
but he hides who he is from them. He obviously, he's God. He has that ability to disguise who he is. Why? I think this is interesting. Ask that question. Why didn't he just pop out of the bushes and go, ha ha, it's me. Oh, we believe this is great. And why did he just, you know, walk along with them? I think you'll see why. Pay attention. And he says to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Okay, so as I began with, everybody knew what was happening. I mean, Jesus went through riding on a donkey's colt. People were, were laying palm branches and, and coats down. Hosanna in the highest. Then he's killed. Everybody sees this. And here comes the one who was killed walking like, I'm totally ignorant. I have no idea what's happening. He wants to get them talking. Here's something really cool. Jesus wants to believe, and I'm skipping ahead a little. He wants people to believe based on the truth of Scripture and what they know, not based on miracles. Jesus, God's way is not to give big signs. It's me. His way is to go, here's what's true. Believe it. Here's what I've written in the past. Here's the things I've done. You can believe based on scripture alone. Why does Luke end, I think, with this? Because Luke also was not an eyewitness. Because Luke and everyone else after that did not see the risen Jesus. Why do we believe? Because of scripture. We didn't see so I, I think that's part, partly why Jesus does that, because he was thinking about you and, and me. So he goes on, verse 20. And it's them talking back to Jesus, who they don't recognize. He says, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So these guys are sad, but what was their hope? Their hope was that Jesus was going to redeem Israel because that was what the Messiah was sent to do. They knew the Messiah was going to redeem them, but they had it a little bit off. They were hoping to be redeemed. They were currently slaves of Rome. Rome owned the Jews at that time. They thought the Messiah would come and lead a revolt and, and redeem them, physically redeem them politically and set up his new kingdom. That's what they thought. What they didn't get was that the Messiah had to redeem their souls first. The Messiah has to redeem our souls first before we get to enjoy his kingdom and his physical rule, which is coming. He had to deal with the sin issue first. They didn't get that. So they had it right. The Messiah was going to redeem Israel, but not just politically, spiritually. So they share this, this hope, yeah, and they're sad. And it's three days, and so it's kind of like, well, three days, you can't come back from three days dead we have no hope. Verse 22, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. So they hear all that. They still don't believe. And they had heard Jesus say earlier, Hey, I'm going to have to die and I'll raise from the dead. They heard him say that, but they didn't get it. Even the women didn't get it until Jesus or until the, the angel said, remember he said this? They're like, oh yeah, he did say that. 
So now Jesus speaks. Verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What did Jesus do? He is still hidden from them, and he calls them fools. I think that's a little bit interesting. We just met, and they're like all sad and woe is me. He's like, you foolish people. Don't you get it? And as they're walking along, Jesus starts quoting scripture. That's the Old Testament. Moses Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote those. You move on and you have all these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, we can go on. There's the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms that David wrote point to the Messiah. The whole Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah who is to come, that is Jesus. And so Jesus here, again, you see he doesn't show himself to them yet. He's explaining the scriptures, hoping they will get it from the scriptures. Here's one of those. I wanted to give you one. Isaiah 53, this will be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. This is probably one of those that Jesus quoted to them as they were walking along. This was written hundreds of years before by Isaiah. Isaiah says this, speaking of the Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is one among many. Is that not an, a perfect description of what Jesus did for us on the cross? Amen. <laughs> exactly. Amen. This was written hundreds of years before. They knew the scriptures, but yet... They, there was two roles that the Messiah would play, a suffering servant to deal with our sin and a reigning king. It gives me chills because next time when Jesus comes, he's coming as a reigning king. He's coming on a horse. He's coming to rule and we're going to be his subjects and it's going to be totally awesome. But the first time he had to deal with our sin first because we can't become part of that kingdom. We can't go into his presence in our state of sin. So Jesus first, the suffering servant had to deal with sin. He's explaining this to these men, going, I want you to get it. I want you to get it. You know, I just picture Jesus watching them. Is the light bulb going to come on as to what just happened? Again, this is in your notes. Jesus desires that people believe because of Scripture, not because of seeing miracles. And that refers to Old and New Testaments alike. Now, just a, a quick little plug, because I didn't have time in the sermon to get into it. Um, but we have an article on our website. It's a, a six-page article. It's double-spaced, big typing. Um, so it's not a lot. But it talks about the reliability of the Bible, because we, we base what we believe on this. So if, is this trustworthy? If, if you question that, then you're a wise person. 
go read this article because it's very helpful. It's on our website under our beliefs and under scripture. There's a little link and you can just click there. Uh, you might want to talk about it in your outpost groups this week. But it gives a lot of, of good reasons why we can believe this book. So I don't have time to get into it, um, but, but check that out. Let me read on. 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, Jesus, acted as if he were going further. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now remember, Jesus is fully human. Jesus was sweating drops of blood before he went to the cross. He was not looking forward to it. Now he's on the other side of the cross. He's got his risen body. I think he's having some fun. But he urged them strongly, stay with us. So he went and he stayed with them. Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. This looks a lot like the Last Supper. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while opening to us the scriptures? Do you see this theme again? When the scriptures were being shared by Jesus, their hearts were burning. There was a power in scripture that your words and my words don't have. There's a power in scripture. That's why I would say, use scripture whenever possible. It, it, many of you, if you've talked to me, uh, you know, asking for life advice or whatever, when I'm wise, I don't give it. I open to what scripture says because scripture has the power. My voice doesn't. And also, even to those who don't believe yet, Scripture has power. Now, I'm not saying go knock on doors and just start reading Scripture to people. But there's a time for those, if, if the Holy Spirit is having a conversation with a non-believer, leading them to Him, what they might need is these words here. So, these disciples, they get up, they, they recognize Him, they think that's exciting, and they go back to the rest of the disciples. Verse 36. They told the other disciples, sorry, they ran back to town. They tell the disciples, we've seen the risen Jesus. 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate before him. So here, Jesus counters an objection that is going to come later. And this will come later in the church. Early on in the life of the church, there was a heresy that came out saying, well, Jesus just rose spiritually. He didn't raise bodily. Well, here Jesus says, no, I rose bodily. Touch me. Feel the wounds. Give me some food. I'll eat. He wanted to prove that he rose from the dead. He didn't just say, I rose from the dead. Believe it. He shows them. He proves it to them. He appears to them. But here's what's cool. He doesn't just appear to them. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul writes that Jesus, after appearing to them at one point, he appears to 500 at the same time. 500 people saw the risen Jesus at the same time. These people were in Jerusalem when he was killed. They saw him risen. I think Luke probably talked to some of those 500. I think as Luke went on his journeys, he found some of those 500 that saw the risen Jesus. And they're like, yeah, Peter's right. 
It's exactly like what he said. Yeah, I saw him too. He let me touch his hand. Here's what it felt like. So here we have 500 people. And when Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians, he's writing it to those who would doubt the truth. Again, he's not sharing some hypothetical spiritual thing. He's saying this happened. And if you don't believe me, go talk to those 500 people because they'll validate it. And they had no, there was no benefit to this religion for those who would follow to make it up. There was no benefit. They, had, they gave their lives for it. They lived lives of poverty, stricken, outcasts because of it. Now, in your uh, bulletin as you came in, you were given a magnet. That magnet holds that passage in 1 Corinthians and it also holds John 3.16. If you didn't get a magnet, grab one on the way out. But we put them in this form so that you could take it home. But we all need something to hold the pictures on our fridge. But, but you'll look at your magnet. It says, this is true. The truth of the gospel is really summed up in those verses right there. This is true. They say this. Paul writes, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whomever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is really that simple. That this is a true thing, a true event that happened in the past, that God acted, and there are consequences, eternal consequences. So we finish up. If this is absolutely true, what does that mean? Why do we look at this? Why did, why did we look at the beginning of Luke and skip to that? Because Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And it's true. It's not a myth. It's not one idea among many. And it's, it's pretty reasonable. You can study it. You can look at history. This happened. Even those other writers from the first century, they couldn't deny that this happened. It was so well known. They attributed it to other things. Some said it was of the devil or this or that. But these things happened. And if Jesus rose from the dead and he is who he claimed to be, then this is true. Amen. Amen. That's right. And if this is true, what does that mean to you? You can have confidence. You can have confidence that what you believe is certain. So when you go engage in conversations and somebody believes this and somebody believes that, you don't have to say, well, I believe this. I mean, there is a way to share with love and gentleness, but I hear that so often. Well, I believe, and it's said in a way like, well, I believe, and I'm saying it this way so that you're free to believe what you want to believe because I don't want to come across as intolerant to go, this is true, but yet this is true. And so we can say it lovingly. So it gives us confidence in in our own, but also if this is true, what should we be doing out there? How is God going to change our community? How is Jesus going to reach the lost? It doesn't happen in this room, if you didn't know that. Most often it doesn't happen in this room. This is a great place. I love this room. But evangelism, people hearing this message, it happens out there. It happens with your neighbors. It happens with your family. It happens with your coworkers. It happens to those who see your life. They need the truth. And by the way, I heard this said this week. Excellent. That what we're doing is joining the Holy Spirit in the conversations he's already having with people. The scripture says that Jesus, God, desires none to be lost, but all to come to salvation, all to come to repentance. But yet, 
He works through his people, not around them. Which means the Holy Spirit is already talking to people out there in his own ways. But yet at some point, one of his people is going to have to speak. That's you and that's me. So this gives us certainty and confidence and hope in the future. I'm so excited for Jesus to come back later this afternoon. Or whenever he chooses to. But until then, we can invite others into that. So here's, we're going to finish with worship. But here's, here's our response. We don't have communion today. But we would ask you to respond in this way. Who is God laying on your heart that needs this message? Who is laying on your heart that maybe you need to share him with? Or maybe you need to invite him to the next few weeks. During this next song, take an action step. Come up here to one of these tables. And by the way, there's lots of pens and paper, so it could be more than one at a time. Write down at least one name of who the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart. If he hasn't laid anybody on your heart, then when we start singing, don't sing. Pray. <laughs> Ask the Holy Spirit to show you who is in your life right now that needs this message. Write their name down. Then come up, write their name down, fold it, put it in the box. This is not for us. This is between you and God. This is you and God saying, there's somebody, God, you're having a conversation with and I want to join in. Think about it, pray about it. Write their name down and come up and set it in here. We're, we're moving toward Easter. Easter's coming up. Uh, there's a time, something happens with Easter. People are a little bit more open to God moving and to hearing the gospel. So we're excited for what God is due. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we have certainty <laughs> that you are the Son of God. We have certainty that you came, that you died on the cross, that you rose from the dead. We have certainty that because of your sacrifice, our sins are forgiven. We have certainty that because you rose from the dead, you were victorious, we will also rise from the dead. It gives us that confidence and that hope that Jesus, when you return or when we die to go be with you, we will get those new bodies at some point in there and we will be with you for eternity when you set up your perfect kingdom. We cannot wait. Holy Spirit, I beg you. I beg you to move. I beg you for boldness. Boldness in us to share this with others. Boldness in us to just ask questions. Ask people where they are spiritually. Not to be Bible beaters, not, you know, not to hit people over, but to lovingly open ourselves up to what you might do. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, here's the last thing, though. If you're in here and you haven't stood on the certainty of Jesus for salvation, do that during this song. There's going to be people available in the back to pray. Go see one of them. The reason they're there is because they love you. The reason they're there is they want to pray with you. If you want to know more about this life with Jesus, go see one of our prayer people in the back.